number of things that are in your bulletins this morning, and I think it will just be a little bit easier for you. Uh, last week, we began a sermon series that's going to carry us through uh, Christmas this year, and the title of that series is Credo in Jesus Christ, Credo in Jesus Christ. Credo is the Latin word that when you translate it means I believe, and it is the first word of the Apostles' Creed, I believe. And we noted uh, last week that this is the season when the word believe begins to pop up all over the place in our culture, in malls near you, and no doubt on porches and patios near you as well, you will find the word believe. Uh, but we noted that believing with respect to what the culture is saying is probably not the same thing that we're talking about when the scriptures encourage us to believe. So last week, if you weren't with us, we were in John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, we saw that John uh, the Baptist is exhorting us, preparing us to believe the good news. And we read this great verse verse 12 in John chapter 1 that says, but to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. And so with respect to the Bible, with respect to the faith, we are instructed not merely to believe. There's no statement in the Bible that says, hey, just believing is good, believing anything is good, but rather we are to believe specifically in the name of Jesus Christ, in the person of Jesus Christ, in what Jesus Christ came and did in this world. And we see that summarized for us in the Apostles' Creed, in the Nicene Creed. There is this belief, this faith that is given to the people of God with instruction to say together that you believe these things. These are the things that summarize what is contained for us in the Word of God. So, I got a text last Sunday afternoon, sitting outside, uh, enjoying the day, and I received this text. Uh, so one of our younger members came home, uh, and they came to their mom, who was not able to attend the service for a particular reason. And mom said, what was the sermon about? What did, what did Pastor Huber preach on today? And the response from the child was that Pastor Huber said to believe in Santa. <laughs> and I thought, well, <laughs> well, not quite. You know, you, you try to speak clearly, you try to say things clearly from the word of uh, God, and sometimes you miss it. So for the younger members of our congregation who are here today, Pastor Huber last week was in fact not trying to persuade you of the value of believing in Santa. Instead, what Pastor Huber was trying to say last week is that the Bible instructs us that we are to believe in Jesus Christ, the eternal, the everlasting, the forever Son of God who has come into this world. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, parents, by the way, 
Uh, this, what I've just said, these past few moments are a good opportunity to take a few moments after the service and explain the difference to your kids between make-believe and believe. Make-believe is a fun thing, it's a good thing, but make-believe and believe is a good difference and an important distinction uh, for your kids to be able to have. All right, this morning what I'd like to do in order to get us started is I'm going to read for us the song of Zechariah that is from Luke chapter 1. As a reminder, Zechariah was the high priest at the time of uh, the, the conception of Christ and then of John the Baptist as well. And the angel visited Zechariah and said to him that his wife, Elizabeth, who had been barren and they were older, was going to bear a child. And that child would prepare the way for the coming of the Lord, coming of the Savior. And of course, that child was to be uh, John the Baptist. And when the time came for her to give birth, she gave birth and uh, Zechariah named the child John. If you recall the story, he had not been able to speak for uh, the duration of the pregnancy because he had doubted the angelic word that was spoken to him. And when he then is able to speak, we read this song, uh, this prophetic song uh, known as the Benedictus because of the first word, blessed, that is there. So listen to this portion of the word of God. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy he promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. Lord, we pray. Uh, that today, as we reflect on these things, that your spirit, who authored these words, who inspired Zechariah uh, when he sang this prophetic song, would be with us today to illumine our hearts, to guide us into truth, to show us the Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Credo. I believe in Jesus Christ, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. Credo in Jesus Christ, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. I told you you're going to need your bulletins today. Turn to page seven of your bulletins. Uh, you'll see the benediction in the middle of that page, and right after that, I copied there a portion of the Nicene Creed so that you could see from where I'm taking that particular title and this particular theme today. If you, if you look down there a little bit, you'll see the word who 
We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ who, for us and for our salvation, came down from heaven. We could pose this as a question and answer. The question would be this, for what purpose did the eternal Son of God, did our Lord Jesus Christ, for what purpose did he come down from heaven? Answer, I believe that for us and for our salvation, the eternal Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, came down from heaven. Why did he come? For us and for our salvation. This idea of salvation, this is probably the central theme in all of the scriptures. We need salvation, and Jesus came to save. We need salvation, and he came to save. And it's our theme today, and a great theme it is. Now, what I'd like to focus on today is our need of, our need for this salvation. Why do we need this salvation? Indeed, to be saved, you have to see, you have to feel, you have to believe that you need to be saved. But we need to start, before we look at it specifically, we need to, before we look at our need, we have to spend a few minutes kind of wrestling through words like saved and salvation and save and savior as well. The, the, the word's pretty common, right? I mean, the word freights an awful lot in our culture, and it freights a lot with respect to what you hear people saying about things religious. You know, you can, you can save time, you can save money, you can save things on your computer, and it's almost kind of like a byword when in the context of the faith people talk about being saved. It's something that can be dismissed pretty quickly as kind of arcane old language that is out there. Are you saved type of language. But we, we need to look at it and see what scripture says about it because we can't let it be that. I don't want to let it be that because it's too important of a word with respect to scripture itself. So let's try to cut through that and see if we can get to the heart of this term. And in order to do that, what I'd like to do is just let me, let me put a few verses from scripture on the table to help us see the centrality of the idea of all of those words, saved, salvation, savior, and the idea of saving as well. So let's, let's put a few things out on the table. First of all, I think we'll start with the, the simplest place, the declaration by Jesus of why he came into this world. Jesus said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. Okay, that's, that's a mission statement by the Lord, and it really can't get plainer or clearer than Jesus saying, this is why I have come into the world for this very purpose. Saving is part of that purpose. Uh, on the front of your bulletin, uh, you'll see uh, the, the first words from the Magnificat, Mary's song. She says this, sings this, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So right from the get-go, before he is born, there's a recognition that the Lord, the Lord himself, God himself is Savior, and Mary's beginning to put together that the Lord himself is coming as a Savior as well. And so the angels will say to 
the shepherds, Luke chapter 2, if you're in your Bible, you could turn the page. The angels will say to the shepherds, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then, again, one more passage for us as we reflect on this is from Matthew. It's on the front of your bulletin. These are the angelic words to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why that name? Why do you give that name to him? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek variant, the Greek way of pronouncing and saying uh, the name that we know of as Joshua, uh, Yehoshua, which is to say the Lord, the Lord as in Jehovah, Yahweh, the Lord saves, or the Lord is salvation. And so in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, his name describes the mission that he has. Now, we just hear Jesus, right? When we hear that name, we don't hear the mission necessarily in the name, but that's what the name means. That's, that's what's at the heart of that name. His name means what he is and what he does. He is the Lord who saves. Now, Zechariah's song, what we have just read together, it has a constellation of words that reflect on this same idea. And let me just unpack a couple of these for us so that you can see them. In verse 68, it says, the Lord has visited and redeemed his people. 69, raised up a horn of salvation for us. You may recognize the horn of salvation language from the call to worship this morning, which included the praise to God that he's raised up the horn of salvation. Verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies. Verse 74, that we being delivered from the hands of our enemies. And then when we come down to the specific thing that John the Baptist will do, it says to give the knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. So there's a, there's a whole constellation of words here that relate to one another and describe some of this. The forgiveness of sins is part of this saving. The redeeming is part of this saving. The delivering is part of this salvation as well. And then as we continue on in the story, again, in Luke chapter 2, if we turn the page in Luke chapter 2, we'll see that when Jesus is brought to Jerusalem, that Simeon takes the infant Jesus into his arms and praises God and blesses God, saying, my eyes have seen your salvation. I'm holding it. I'm looking at salvation. And so I think we can see the pervasiveness. Obviously, I'm just using words here that relate to this specific time, this specific coming of Jesus into the world to show us how just in this section of Scripture, how pervasive is this idea that Jesus came to save? That's what he does. He saves, and he is the one who is the bringer with him of salvation. So, preliminary definition of what does it mean? When we're talking about to save, what are we saying here? To save means to rescue. It means to deliver. It means to set free from bondage. It means to find that which is lost, and to bring it back, and to bring it back home, and to keep it safe, and to keep it secure. 
That's what it means when we talk about what, what are you talking about when you say, are you saved? This is what we're talking about. Those things right there. Salvation, then, is the noun that describes that, and Savior is the person who does that. So then I want to get to the question. Who needs such a salvation, and why? Why do you need to be saved? Let's begin with an image of a fairy tale. If we were locked in a tower, and the tower was guarded by an evil army and some evil wizard, and there was a dragon that was there, we would understand, in terms of fairy tale pictures and fairy tale images, why do we need to be saved? We need to be saved from this. And the reason is there's no escape without someone coming to save us. But of course, that's a fairy tale of an image. The question for us is, why do we need to be saved? From what do we need to be saved? And why does it take the eternal Son of God to save us? Why must God himself save us? Why can't someone else accomplish this salvation on our behalf? If we were in a fire, a fireman could come and save us. If uh, we were in dire straits in terms of our physical condition, perhaps a doctor could come and save us. If we were drowning, perhaps a lifeguard could come and save us. If we were in a fairy tale, maybe a knight errant could come and rescue us from the condition in which we found ourselves. But the reality is, we're in a much more dire situation than any of those. We're in a much more difficult situation, and no mere man can save us. So then we ask this question, what is this peril? What is the peril that creates this need for salvation by such a Savior? And I want to answer this today in two ways. In the first place, I want to answer that question with the clarity of the catechism. That's what we're going to turn to in just a moment, the clarity of the catechism. And then I want to answer it by referring to the penetrating power of the poetry, specifically that we see in Zechariah's words, but especially in Psalm 88 as well. So if you will, now in your bulletins, I want you to turn back with me to the confession of faith, to the affirmation of our faith that you'll find on pages five and six of your bulletin this morning. I'd like, I know the questions aren't numbered there, they go 17 to 20, uh, that's there. I'm going to focus on those middle two questions, but in order to do that, I just want to remind us or, or kind of set up for us what the context is by looking at the one that comes before it and the one that comes after this. So the, the first question is, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Now, we're going to define those in just a moment. The next two questions do that. For right now, all we can say is, that's not good, right? Whatever we want to say about them, however we want to define them, when you are in a, in a state of sin and misery, that's not good. Question 20, which you'll find at the top of page 6, and Blake tipped us off here. This is where the transition begins to take place. Question 20 affirms for us the fact that God did not leave all mankind to perish in that estate of sin and misery. Instead, God made it possible for them to enter into, if, if, you, if you want to read it there, deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery, made it possible to bring them into 
and a state of salvation by a redeemer. So just to, to set the stage for the next two things, we've got these two estates. We've got the estates of sin and misery, and they are here. It is God's desire to save us, to bring us out of them and into this estate over here. And a state of salvation is how it is described for us in the uh, 20th answer that is there. So we're describing something, in other words, that we've seen in all of these scripture passages. That's all the creeds and confessions are trying to do. Give us a way to understand what all of these passages, what all of these things say about salvation. We need, then, this salvation. Because, as we then read in question 18, as we continue on, as we then read, the, in the fall of Adam, the human race was brought, in the first place, into an estate of sin. The estate of sin in which you find yourself doesn't begin with us. It doesn't begin with you in the first place, at least. We'll get to us, don't worry. Uh, we're not far behind. But it's not us that is the start of that estate. Adam was our representative head. He was the king of humanity. And when he fell, when Adam fell, he was if, and this is an imperfect analogy, but I've used it before, he's just the first domino. Okay, he's the first domino that in his fall causes the fall of all of the other dominoes that are linked. Everybody that descends from him as well. He sets in motion all of the others. Romans 5 is the place to go to see this most clearly laid out in Scripture. We're not going to turn to it right now because it's dense and it's wonderful, but it's more than we can bite off in this sermon as well. But just two quotes from Romans 5. Here's one. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. Got it? One trespass by that one man led to condemnation for all men. Everybody who comes from him, and understand that men is used collectively here. A second quote from Romans 5. By one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So you aren't in the first place in an estate of sin because of your sin. You're in an estate of sin because of Adam's sin. Because you come from him and his sin is imputed to all who come from him. Now, you may go, that, that doesn't sound very fair, right? Why didn't I get a chance? I, maybe I would have done better in the garden than Adam did. Give me a fresh start. Give me a fresh chance. That's not the way it works. And that's also, by the way, not the way your salvation works. You'd be dead without hope if that's what God decided to do. There would be no hope. But in any case, we need to see what takes place here. He was guilty. He didn't just feel guilty. Uh, and in his guilt is our guilt as well. It is imputed to us, an estate. It is a condition based on the guilt of that first sin. But the problem isn't merely that Adam did something wrong and was guilty. It is also this. Adam failed to do that which was right. He didn't only do something that was wrong. 
he failed to do what God had commanded him positively to do. And so understand it this way. Adam, in his sin, did not only gain guilt, he lost righteousness. He lost the status of having done that which is right, that which is called original righteousness. So this is what the catechism is saying. The sinfulness of that estate wherein to man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin and the want of original righteousness. Adam was guilty of sin, and he was guilty also, if we want to use that language, of not being righteous anymore, and that is imputed to us as well. We lost it also. And so none of us start this life with a clean slate, with a tabula rasa upon which we can write our lives. For that matter, uh, Adam didn't start with a clean slate. He started with a righteous slate. He started as one that was pleasing to God in terms of the way that God created him. No, as the scriptures say, as David says, he was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And that's true for us as well. That's true for everyone who is born into this world, not because of some particular sin of our earthly parents, but because of the sin of our very first earthly parent. Okay, that's why we're brought forth in iniquity and conceived in sin, because of that original sin. And thus, what became true for Adam is true for us. And he and we, as it continues on, have suffered the corruption of our whole nature. There's not a part of this that is unaffected by it. So whether you're talking about your mind, your heart, your soul, or your body, the desires that come up out of us, or our will, all of them are in an estate of sin that we call original sin. And as if that in and of itself weren't bad enough, that estate includes all then of the actual sins which proceed from it. That's the last line of that eight, question 18. Together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. And the point of actual here isn't that the original sin isn't actual. It's quite actual as well. It's talking about the ones that you actively commit. All of the sins that you actively commit, that you yourself commit, they flow right out of this. The corruption of your whole nature that took place because Adam fell. When he fell, that corrupted you, and all of the stuff that springs up from out of you makes you guilty as much as Adam in and of himself is also guilty. And so the simple truth of Scripture is this. We can say it in a twofold kind of way. From Romans 3.23, a lot of us know that verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the guilt part of it. And if you go just a little bit earlier in Romans, we would read this. No one does good. There's none righteous, not even one. Okay? So you've got the sin and the absence of righteousness. Those two things, and then all of the stuff that flows out of those two things. And with that sin, then we go to the next issue, that we are brought into not only the estate of sin, but into the estate of misery as well. And misery is as bad as it actually sounds. The estate of sin and misery is described here for us in the Catechism. All mankind, by their fall, 
lost communion with God. Uh, the larger catechism, which is obviously larger than the shorter catechism, puts it like this, that all mankind became separate from the comfortable presence of God. So in the garden prior to the fall, Adam and Eve enjoyed the comfortable presence of God. And in the estate of misery, we lost that and are, in fact, under in and of ourselves his wrath and curse. God isn't neutral. And then the larger catechism includes something that is left out here in the shorter catechism. It says not only are we by nature the children of wrath, but we have become as a result of this in this state of misery bond slaves of Satan. Our misery is a bondage. One is holding us captive, and it is Satan that is holding us captive in this state of misery. And so, as it continues, we're made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. In the same way that we saw the uh, actual transgressions flowing out of the estate of sin, here we see the actual miseries flowing out of the estate of misery as well. It's the soiled and the spoiled fruit of the estate of misery. Everything that we have, that we will experience, that is awful in this world flows from that. We need salvation from this estate, and no mere man can do it. And the reason that no mere man can do it, can take us out of the estate of sin and misery, is because all of us are in the same estate. Okay, that's the problem. There's no one who's not in the burning building amongst humanity who can say, let me get you out of the burning building, because they're in the same burning building, or to put it in the way we normally say it, all of us are in the same boat. So there's no mere person, mere human, who can deliver us out of that. So that's the catechism way of saying it, and that can, can get into our minds. But then I want to transition to the poetical way of seeing this same thing. We can see it in Psalm 88, and we can see it in Zechariah's song as well. We already saw in the, the phrases that I quoted for us earlier that the theme of Zechariah's psalm, song is a theme of salvation. And if we were to ask Zechariah, Zechariah, what are we being saved from? Okay, what's, what's the thing that we're being saved from? Well, that's actually answered in his song. Verse 71 says that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. And then down in verse 74, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. So Zechariah can prophesy, can speak of this in a very tangible way. When, when he's saying this, he's probably thinking most immediately in his context of the Romans. The Romans are our occupiers right now, the ones who rule over us. We're going to be saved from the Romans. But all one has to do is to look back a little bit farther in Israel's history, and we could say saved from the Philistines, saved from the Babylonians, saved from the Assyrians, saved from the Egyptians. There are all kinds of peoples who have been 
enemies of the people of God, but of course the catechism in terms of understanding this in New Testament as it unfolds language helps us to see that our enemies are in fact far more significant than merely those people, those nations that oppress the Jewish people. It's not that they weren't real, it's just that they, they represented more, the estate of sin and misery. And we can see this described for us in Psalm 88. And let's look together now at Psalm 88. Look in your bulletin with me. You'll see it there on pages four and five of your bulletin. I want to make clear the context of this psalm before we look at it. The context is that first verse, O Lord, God of my salvation. God of my salvation. God of my Yeshua. Yehoshua. We could almost translate it this way. O Lord, God of my Jesus. God of my Jesus. God of my salvation that is here. Now listen to the words the psalmist uses to describe what is the estate of sin and misery. Troubles, Sheol, pit, no strength, loose among the dead, slain that lie in the grave, those who are remembered no more, cut off, depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep, overwhelmed. Uh, think of it this way. You know the commercials that advertise various drugs and various treatments, for example, for depression? And sometimes they'll have the person with the placards, and they're holding up the placards, and they'll take one placard up, and they'll put the next word that's there. Think, think of these words as coming up here. This is what it feels like. This is what the estate of sin and misery actually feels like. You can define it with a catechism if you'd like to, but do you know what it feels like? And that's what the psalmist is answering for us here. Shunned. I've been made a horror. I'm shut in. I can't escape. Sorrow. Grave. Darkness. Land of forgetfulness. Cast my soul away. Hate your face is hidden. I've been afflicted. I've been close to death. I'm suffering terrors. I'm helpless. Dreadful assaults destroy me. Surround me like a flood, close in on me together. I'm shunned. Everything has become darkness. Last placard, put him down. Put him down. That's what it feels like. That is what it feels like to be in the estate of sin and misery. For me, darkness is the most palpable of those terms, but take them together. They're crushing in describing this life and our souls. And we have to note something here. The psalmist doesn't pin this situation on bad luck, on bad karma, on a depersonalized universe that's just out to get him and things aren't going well for him, or even enemies. The, the psalmist doesn't pin it on enemies. Instead, the psalmist is seeing his own personal responsibility for this, and in response to his personal responsibility, he's seeing the just hand of God at work in these things. In other words, it's personal. It's personal. You have put me in the depths of the pit, verse 6. Verse 7, 
Your wrath lies heavy. You overwhelm me. These are your waves that are coming over my head. Verses 8 and 18. You have caused them to shun me. You made me a horror. Verse 15. I suffer your terrors. Not just random terrors. Not just random night terrors. I suffer your terrors. Your wrath. Your deadly assaults. This is a man who feels the truth that he is in and a state of sin and misery. He is under the wrath and curse of God and he can't just blame it on Adam because he sees his own participation in Adam's first sin. He sees all of the things that flow out of it and he's in need of salvation from that same exact saving God. Where else are you going to turn? Who are you going to turn to to get away from the Lord's waves and the Lord's breakers and the Lord's wrath causing them upon you? Oh Lord, God of my salvation. That's the place. You have to go back to that one. It's personal. And you have to deal with that person, with God himself. Thomas Oden uh, did a series of commentaries in which is a kind of a compendium of the third thoughts of the earliest church father, fathers, and he writes this. There reigns, quote, there reigns in the broken human heart a feeling of discord, a lack of congruence between who one is and who one ought to be. Christian preaching does not circumvent this feeling of incongruence, but exposes and addresses it openly. The crushed heart must be emphatically felt, period, end quote. You have to feel it. I have to preach it. You have to read it. You have to feel it. We have to see and feel and understand the need of salvation, and the need of a Savior. Because when you do, this not then only increases our thankfulness to the Lord for a salvation, our perception of the need of salvation. When you feel these things in the depth of your being, it will increase your love. Psalm 18, call to worship this morning. Psalm 18 starts, I love you, Lord. Why do I love you? Well, because you're my strength, my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my rock, my shield. You're the horn of my salvation. When you understand it in the depth, your love goes up because you see that you've been loved with an everlasting love that makes no sense given who you are. What remains then is a simple question. How does the one who came in this world, into this world, with the name Jesus, with the name the Lord is salvation, the Lord saves, how does the Savior become your Savior? How does the Savior become your Savior? Ready for the answer? Credo. Credo in Jesus Christ. 
I believe in Jesus Christ who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven. How does he become your savior that way? There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4, it's on the front of your bulletin. To save you from the estate of sin and misery and to bring you into an estate of salvation. To turn the wrath of God into the tender mercy of God. Bondage into freedom. Terror into love. Darkness into marvelous light. The eternal Son of God became the God-man, Jesus Christ. He came down to earth from heaven, who was king and Lord of all. He came down to earth from heaven for you and for your salvation to save us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. Here's the exhortation for you today. Believe it. Believe it. Believe it today. Believe it every day. Lord God, we pray that you would enable that which you have commanded. You've commanded us to believe. Grant us the strength that we might do exactly that. Change the heart. Change the mind. Change the will. So that we can believe in you and have life. Jesus, you are a worthy Savior, and we thank you for your perfections, for your worthiness on our behalf. You came down for us and for our salvation. Help us to believe it in your name. Amen.